This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hello there and welcome to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. It is a Monday morning, the 20th of November. A special broadcast live from Union House in Dubai as we count down to the UAE's 52nd National Day. What have we got for you today? Well, we're going to jump straight into our top story this morning. Sam Altman fired as the boss of OpenAI on Friday. But could he be back within a few hours? Going to get thoughts of Sam Altman and also a reaction to that from one professor from NYU Abu Dhabi. What else have we got? Well, we're down at Union House, so we're talking emeritized. Talib Hashem, Managing Director of TBH Advisory, has been in conversation with Tom Urquhart. Then, talking real estate, Zan Jahinki of Property Model and of Cavendish Maxwell. And finally, Mark Yankar of the Coca-Cola Arena. We think of the Coke Arena down in City Walk as being for music concerts and stand-up comedy, which it is. But also, they've got a booming market in corporate events as well. So talk to him about the events industry. All that to come. First up, though, the big story today, Sam Altman. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Good morning, Tom Rich and Brandy with you this morning. Down here at Union House, uh, more on our broadcast later, but we are looking towards UAE National Day at the beginning of December here on Dubai Eye 103.8 with our sponsors Malabar Golden Diamonds, Disney Plus, Watania Takaful, Fun City, Glue Ice Cream, Homes Are Us, Hot Pack, and First Abu Dhabi Bank. A morning where we have been discussing something of of a puzzle coming out of the world of AI. Richard Dean, you've got more. Yes, Sam Altman, Friday, fired as the CEO of OpenAI. That's the company behind ChatGPT, the company he founded. Today, all the headlines are about him coming back <laughs> as the CEO of OpenAI. We'll get some analysis in a second. First of all, let's hear from him now. This is Sam Altman speaking recently at a conference in the United States about the future of AI. I mean, I think there's many ways it could go wrong, but we, we work with powerful technology that can be used in dangerous ways very frequently. And I think we've developed over the decades good safety system practices in many categories. Uh, it's not perfect, and this won't be perfect either. Things will go wrong. Um, but I think we'll be able to mitigate some of the worst scenarios you could imagine. You know, bioterror is like a common example. Cybersecurity is another. I, there are like many more we could talk about. That's Sam Altman. He is was the CEO of OpenAI. And by the time Business Breakfast is on air tomorrow, he may well be again. We'll be getting some reaction to this now. From Professor Nancy Gleason. She is at New York University, Abu Dhabi. She's a professor of practice and political science. And we asked him, so Sam Altman, he's been fired, presumably for a reason. We don't know what that reason is. He's coming back. We don't know what that reason is either. So is Sam Altman the hero or the villain? Well, he's certainly got all the cards now. Um, he's holding out for a replacement of the board entirely and obviously better financial terms for himself, but he owns no shares in the company, which was part of the altruistic um, structure of the firm to begin with. He is definitely the public face of artificial intelligence. He's the, he's the one speaking all around the world at different government bodies, advising cautionary moves forward. But just a few days ago, he was uh, on a panel in Asia and mentioned that he had recently in the last few weeks seen a major advancement 
And this, we think, may be the trigger point where he let the public know that potentially OpenAI already has artificial general intelligence. This may have been what he was removed for, that's some of the speculation. Um, or there was also a development day, their first sort of flashy Microsoft Apple type announcements, which many felt were too corporate and too for-profit for the nature of the company. One of those two things may be the reason he was removed. Now, if they, do, if they did discover artificial general intelligence, that would be a major step um, for the whole world. And that's why people are following this closely. They want to know why Sam Altman was removed. Professor Nancy Gleason of New York University, Abu Dhabi. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. We're taking a little bit of a State of the Union um, theme to the show today, looking at how the UAE has grown uh, in recent years as we build up to the National Day celebrations. And who better to have alongside me than a proud Emirati, the MD of the TBH Advisory, Talib Hashim, who's also a partner at Sadara. Thank you so much indeed for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Always a pleasure. Not a bad setting, is it? Yeah, and a beautiful morning as well. Beautiful morning, beautiful setting, and here we are. What a perfect opportunity for us to reflect on emiratization at the moment. You and I have spoken, and you've spoken to the Business Breakfast for many years, about the ongoing efforts uh, of the government here in the UAE to increase the numbers of Emiratis working in the workforce, both public and private as well. If you were to write an end-of-term, an end-of-year report, what grade would you give those pro- that process at the moment? If I would grade it, I'd look from where we've come from. Mm. When we started the company in 2006, Emirates Asia has been struggling between 0.65% to 1%. Uh, today we're looking at, according to the ministry, you have around 75,000 UAE nationals working in the private sector. So pretty much almost 10% achieved or surpassed uh, at the moment. Um, so I would give it a 7 out of 10 because I have high expectations. High expe- that, That's why we love you. That's why we love you, Taleb. Good to have you here with those expectations. Um, 2023 has been a significant year for the nationalization, the emiratization projects with quota systems coming in, uh, targets being set as well. Again, where are we at as we come to the end of the year? Is there a better understanding amongst companies of their responsibilities? I think there's a growing understanding. It took time for companies to accept and acknowledge that right this is here and we need to get on with it you had companies that were trying to find loopholes we've spoken about that Mm. but more and more companies now are falling in place i think going forward 2024 i think companies from what our conversations are companies are looking at how do they attract retain and how do they get the rest of the team aligned and on board this mindset shift is something that's occurring that we always hear in the mailises. We organize regular employer mailises, focus groups. So most of the HR leaders talk about the need to change mindsets of the line managers, of the business managers, and get on board, get on board in terms of amortization. Why is it important? Why does it drive value? And why do we all need to do this? So I think that's what companies are going to be focusing on uh, in the next couple of years. Yeah, let's talk about 2024, if you can, because as you said, great leaps in recent years years, a real sort of um, advance during 2023. But we are on the cusp of the end of the year. We're looking ahead to 2024. What's on What's on the TBH advisory wish list when it comes to emiratization moving into the next year? I, my wish list is for more employers to have conversations with us 
not about how do we hire MRIs, just put in numbers, but more of looking at the whole thing from a strategic point of view in terms of how do we create an, an, a compelling employer brand? How do we get everyone on board with us? How do we develop these nationals? So my first wish list is for employers to have that conversation with us because that's setting the whole thing for, uh, for success. The other wish list is for the government to have more conversations bringing public and private sector together. So meaning the government is communicating with the public sector, but my wish list is we want to be part of that conversation. I mean, especially for national entrepreneurs like us who not necessarily are in the nationalization field, but have worked in the private sector. I think we can add a lot of value by being part of that table when the government has these conversations with the private sector. You are in a perfect position. You talk to both sides of the equation here. You get a real sense of the sort of trends and what's what's happening out there in the market at the moment. Is the misconceptions that we've talked about in the past, be that from employee or employer, are they changing as well at the moment? Is there a better understanding of the opportunities available? Obviously, there is a better uh, understanding from where we started, but there is a long way to go. Now, mm. think about this, Tom. The, the new leg uh, legislation does not talk about companies from 50 and above, 50 yeah. skilled workers, but you're now talking about businesses that might be considered, um, you know, at the end of micro-business, so 20 to 49. There are a lot of companies that are new to the country, mm. don't understand why do we need to do this. They look at this, unfortunately, I'm going to say the answer, they look at this as another form of tax. The problem here is, or the opportunity, is to shift their mindset and get them to understand by being aligned with the government, by adding value, by adding nationals, they bring value to your organization. So I think there's a long way to go in terms of communicating the value and shifting the mindset. Oh, I mean, we talk about the job market with these grand uh, brushstrokes, etc. but are some sectors, are some industries doing it better than others? I think uh, obviously the banking sector is doing it rather because uh, they've started long ago. The, the expectation yeah. is higher uh, from them. Uh, property, uh, semi, uh, uh, property sector is doing good. Uh, the sectors that I see um, facing some challenges are the insurance sector, for example. Uh, so um, they have their job cut out for them. I, I rarely find any graduates saying, "Hey, I love a career in the insurance sector." Mm. Um, so. And the expectation is higher. The quotas is different for them because they fall under the uh, banking and finance quotas. Uh, so I think there are uh, there is no one key sector besides the banking and, uh, and uh, finance sector that are doing great. All the other sectors are, are doing uh, considerably well. Talib, always good to catch up with you. Really appreciate you coming on down here to Union House, to Thank the Etihad Museum. Beautiful setting for Absolutely. catch up with you. Thanks so much indeed for Thank your you, time. Tom. Thanks for all your help throughout the year as well. Uh, that's it from us out and about. It's back to our pop-up studio. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. We are talking property this morning. The new Property Monitor monthly report is out. It shows that the Dubai markets set a new annual record. We knew that. Uh, but it suggests that the off-plan market might not be seeing the slowdown that everyone has thought. And we didn't know that. To join us and put it all in context, Jean Jahinke, CEO of Property Monitor and Director of Market Intelligence and Research at Cavendish Maxwell. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Loving the outdoor office today. Uh, it's not bad, <laughs> is it? And the weather, um, well, thank goodness it's not last Friday, is all that I can say <laughs> weather-wise. Right. You very kindly gave us the heads up this month when property prices reached the peak of their last cycle. Whereabouts are we now? 
So we're at that peak of the last cycle, uh, on average, to buy wide. Um, nice, easy number to remember, 1, 2, 3, 4, 1,234 dirhams a square foot. Um, so that puts us equal at parity to the last peak of September 2014. And yet, this report has got a couple of interesting trends in it that you have seen in October. Uh, the first one, that the rate of price appreciation is now slowing. What are you seeing? Yeah, so that increase that we sort of hit to reach that parity, we only went up 0.14% month on month. Um, if we look at the, the market recovery cycle, the 36 months that we've gone through so far, on average, we're about 1.2% month on month, which is a really nice, stable price growth. Um, you've heard me bang on in the past about if we see something that's 2, 25 3%, that's prices running away. And that's something we saw in the last market cycle. That was only a 24-month cycle. And in the middle of that, you had sort of almost right in the middle, some months where it was 2, 2 and a quarter, 2 and a half percent And that was really rapidly running away. This time, it's been nice and gradual. And the last couple of months, it started to even moderate further. What does that suggest in terms of where we are in the cycle? So we're going to see anything sort of sub plus one, plus minus one percent is healthy, right? It's not indicative of the market running away, but also not of it sort of chasing down and going a downward cycle. It's not necessarily saying we're going to a plateau. We're just seeing a lot of prices where they have reached their, their peak. You're not seeing sellers being able to get five, ten percent more above the last sale. They're getting five, ten thousand more above the last sale now. And a lot of that's in the, the ready property market, the completed segment. So I think you've seen that runaway growth start to, that's stopped. And now we're seeing much more gradual, steady price appreciation. And on the volume side, where we also saw a new annual record in the last month, you're looking at the number of transactions and say that they're actually declining. Yeah, so looking at the data, something was off. (laughs) So we went from an an average of about 10,500 transactions for the last 12 months rolling Mm -hmm. um, to in August, we were about 12,000 transactions. And in September, we dropped down to 7,000. That's a big drop. That's <laughs> and then we also saw October them at a similarly low point. It just doesn't make sense. Digging into it deeper, it started to uncover a few things. The drop was actually in the off-plan market in accrued registrations, whereas you had Title D completed properties staying relatively steady at about five, five and a half thousand transactions a month. But looking into the off-plan, it was like the wind got sucked out of the sails of the off-plan market all at one time. Um, every developer across the market, every product type, it just didn't add up and didn't make sense. So we've been very careful over the last couple of months about what we've been talking about because those things just don't line up. Well, so it doesn't line up that off-plan sales looked like on the face of it that they were falling? It's fine for them to fall, but not to that extent. For a market to lose pretty much all the steam at once across every single developer without a GFC, without a COVID-level crisis, that just doesn't happen. And at the same time, for the ready market to continue, you'd, you'd expect to see those happen actually at the same time in lockstep. So we decided to look into it further. We have a lot of developer clients and speaking with them, they were noticing that transactions that they had completed and, and registered and submitted not actually showing up in the data yet, which is not unnecessarily weird. Um, you do have a delay sometimes in that being completed and it coming up in the data, but over two months and the sheer volume of transactions, it, it really started to ring some alarm bells. Okay, so where are we with this now? Well, <laughs> over the weekend, it was fixed. 
Um, so the, the missing transactions if we put it, or delayed transactions probably better. Um, there was about 10,000 of those, a total sales volume of 20 billion over the last two months. That's now back in the data set. So if we look at things now, there's been zero decline in off-plan in September. In October, there was about an 8% decline in transactions, um, but that's still putting you at 11,000 transactions happening overall. Um, and off-plan numbers not dropping anywhere near significantly. Uh, so on a annual basis, looking at transactions, we have not only hit the highest ever and reached a new peak, we smashed it. 110,000 transactions now gone through, but 100,000 of those being for, ready, for residential property um, and putting us on track now to do probably 125 to 130,000 transactions for the year. That puts us a good 30,000 almost above the previous high that we had in transactions. And with those off-plan sales back on the books, if, if you like, um, if that delay is sort of being accounted for, where are we just in the off-plan health? So if you, I hate to say it, ignore headlines from the last two months related to off-plan. Um, they're not entirely a full picture of that market. Um, the off-plan market, incredibly strong, um, incredibly strong with launches. Last month, we saw about 11,000 plus units come to market for sale and new launches. And seeing the months previous to that, um, it's about 77,000 for the year. Majority of those are being absorbed at launch within a month or two. So there's incredible strength in the off-plan market, both from domestic interest and abroad. And we see that continuing. Developers' behavior is the thing to watch. They're very bullish. New launches coming. Not a lot of incentives or concessions being offered. They're not having to pay exorbitantly high commissions, not having to give away uh, exorbitant post handover payment plans or, or concessions and fees. Um, they're very confident. And if you look at the transaction volumes now, it marries up with that. And when you say bullish with new launches, what can you tell me about the pipeline? It's, it's big. Um, so we've seen about, I think it's 250 plus project launches this year, 77,000 units. We're tracking in excess now of 150 other projects that are in the planning stage that are going to come to market probably over the next quarter, maybe the next two quarters. And number of units, hard to tell right now, big mix between apartments, villas and townhouses. But that together, that's got to be at least another 30 to 40,000 units. What that's going to mean, three, four, five years from now, we have a lot of property that's going to be coming to the market. And we want to see then, is population growth and that demand be there to support it once it's handed over? That's one thing for someone to buy it now, but you need someone to occupy it, pay the rent or to buy it in the open market. Well, speaking of rents, I'm looking at your report again. You're saying that rental yields are holding steady and asking if that means that they've topped out. Yeah, and I think for the most part, yields I think have. Rents in some areas have as well, right? And a part of it is because you're seeing these handovers happen. You've got Ranches 3, which has taken some of that pressure off of the townhouse market and single family market. And you've got more and more launches coming on, so more inventory comes in. You're going to have a supply-demand balance rather than right now there's more demand than supply. So you're going to start to see eventually coming into the couple of quarters of next year some final relief for tenants. Right? Um, how much and where exactly and when, it's just going to be earlier in the new year. You'll start to see more of it. All right, there you go. Uh, not the first person to talk about some relief on the horizon for the uh, the rental community here in Dubai. We had the, the same from Allsop and Allsop the other day saying that they were seeing an increase in the number of checks that landlords were accepting. Jean Jahinki, COO of Property Monitor and Director of Market Intelligence and Research at Cavendish Maxwell, chasing down the numbers, uh, particularly on the off-plan sales, which I know is something that he has been almost obsessed about over yes. the last... <laughs> couple of months. Thank you so much for joining us on the show this morning.
This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. We are live this morning from the Etihad Museum. We're in front of Union House and by the Union flag, where the UAE was created just over 50 years ago. Talking about the events industry with Mark Yan Carr, who's the general manager of the Coca-Cola Arena. Mark, good morning. Good morning. to see you here. Thank you. The reason we've asked you to come down here, and it was Brandy's idea, is I was at an event last week at the Coca-Cola Arena. It wasn't a pop concert. It wasn't a stand-up comedian. It was a business conference. It was the Global Freight Summit. Fine, a really good event, and it, it, it was fine. But, you know, it's not the kind of sexy, high-profile event we associate with the Coca-Cola Arena. And it got Brandy and I thinking about the fact that it seems that the, the Coke Arena is transitioning from not just a music or entertainment venue, but you're also competing against some of the, the, the corporate venues here in the UAE. That, that was our thesis. What's your view? Yeah, listen, we're a multi-venue in its, in its true heart, so it's all about experiences. So, um, yes, traditionally known for sort of the pop culture, but uh, we've sort of been in that space for corporate events since the very beginning. Um, you know, we've had probably about 44 or 45 corporate events, ranging everything from the Global Freight Summit through to the Dubai Air Show, if you remember a few years ago, last minute uh, change with the weather, uh, real estate sales events to IBM forums. Um, so it's, it's very much in our space, bread and butter. How much does it add to your balance sheet, though? If you were to split rough percentages between the entertainment stuff and the business stuff, where are you at the moment? Give you an exact number, 27%. Ooh. Of the business? 27% of the business is corporate. How big could it get? The reality is, is as we produce more live shows, we need more dates. I was here a couple of weeks ago when we talked about we're getting so busy now that shows are taking place midweek like we did with Bastille and and a few others, uh, Trevor Noah on a Tuesday. I think probably around about 35, that's about it. Add we add uh, hopefully a sports franchise team in the building that may even come down a little bit less. So because I was thinking and I was at this, the Global Freight Summer, which is a proper corporate event. And it's great that you've got it there. It was two days. It was the Wednesday and the Thursday. But because they built a proper stage and a proper set, you couldn't have Taylor Swift there on the Wednesday night. So you'd have to turn that business away because they, you couldn't pull down that corporate event. Even though it finishes at 4 p.m. or 5 p.m., you couldn't have a music concert there in the evening. So you're foregoing that revenue, are you? What's the opportunity cost of having a corporate event? No, of course. So the, the difference is with a live concert, you're probably being able to set everything up, let's say, between 12 to 24 hours in advance. Um, and obviously we work 20, We can have the option. We feel as if we work 24 hours a day sometimes. But um, with a corporate event, yes, it takes probably at least two or three days to, to prepare. Um, the one advantage we have with obviously the bigger shows like Taylor Swift, who wouldn't perform in the building because it's an outdoor concert, um, a stadium sort of tour. But, you know, the bigger shows is they're sort of six to 12 months in advance, allowing us to plan for those corporate events. Um, the opportunity cost lies in sort of those last minute um, shows that could come to the building but you do have a space like that but ultimately we're it's like a hotel we're about occupancy so for us as long as the building is trading you know 250 of the 365 days of the year we're doing well are you seeing more of a demand though as you get more high profile events i mean the global freight summit had some really really big names on stage steve wozniak for yeah. he was there five yeah. days after having yeah. a stroke yeah. Astonishing with Chris Fade, who's over my left shoulder. Sachin Tendulkar was there as well. So, as that happens and the pictures go out and you know people post it on social media, are you seeing more interest from corporates? We're we're very fortunate, Touchwood, in the sense that um, 
all of our corporate inquiries are inbound. Um, we pretty much have a bit of a waiting list on the, on the major summits like the Global Freight because obviously the duration. Um, we work very closely with real estate. Um, so we've had probably about six or seven different real estate organizations from Dubai Properties to Bingati to Azizi. Um, so yes, it kind of speaks for itself. It sells itself. What do you have to change in the way that you do business, though? I mean, I'm guessing you're not giving high-earning real estate CEOs nachos and a giant Diet Coke. No, no. The biggest challenge is the, is the catering and transformation, I would say, from sort of public concessions or, or sweet hospitality through to corporate events. So we work with multi, so for, for uh, concerts, catering is done in-house. For corporate events, we work three or four different suppliers of, of caterers. And then based on the culinary experience, the demographic that is attending, and of course the budgets from, from these companies, it, it varies with the, um, with the catering. What are the challenges that come with things like parking? If you've got an evening concert, a lot of people are not necessarily going to be driving, are they? But in the daytime, business people, I'm assuming, more likely to bring their cars? They are. Um, what we have to take in consideration is obviously a lot of um, international tourists as well that attend these in, um, conferences. So there is a bus network that comes through, so there's separate bus parking. Uh, taxi infrastructure, and then obviously city walk during the day has certainly um, many more parking spots. Clearly music's still a big part of what you do. Producer Isa is being DJ this morning. One concert that was postponed just a few weeks ago is going to be coming back, we believe, to the Coca-Cola Arena. DJ Isa, can we have a bit of Macklemore, please? Yeah, I know it ain't pretty when two hearts get broke. I hope someday we'll sit down together. So Macklemore was postponed and Macklemore's coming back. Talk me through the economics of that. So um, obviously that was postponed, as you had mentioned. Um, In addition to the UAE, there's been some other postponements of other shows. So we're obviously working throughout. Our ambition was sort of by middle of November, which was last week, to have those new dates on his tour to Australia. Uh, We're very close and hopefully by no later than Thursday we can confirm what that new date is in 2024. And one of the things that we we spoke about, and Tom picked up on this and so did Brandy, um, Ed Sheeran is not performing at the Coca-Cola Arena and yet we saw, because he's out with the Sevens, right? Correct. In association with the Coca-Cola Arena and we were all scratching our heads, weren't we, Brandy, thinking, well, hang on, that's a competitive venue to the Coca-Cola Arena. What are you doing involved in that? So obviously we, we all work for the city. So our ambition is to support uh, all types of events that take place uh, in this in the beautiful city of Dubai. So Ed is a phenomenal artist that just wouldn't commercially make sense playing in the building. Uh, so why don't we take part of that building out into, into the Sevens venue and, and um, be able to help promote and obviously get 60,000 people through the building. We work very closely with, with Thomas at All Things Live. And um, hopefully you can see a bit of Coca-Cola Arena at the Ed Sheeran. Is this the first time you've done that, Coca-Cola Arena? First time we've done that, and there is another one coming up very soon. Which you could tell us about right now? Uh, Probably not. Not yet. (laughs) Not yet. The ink's not dry. The ink's not dry. Oh, go on. No one's listening. (laughs) How much do you have to move things around to slot in... uh, concerts that have have been cancelled or postponed or that come back i mean is there a knock-on effect with everything else you've got scheduled in absolutely it was um you know we talk about you know that famous word pivot from covid it's it's pivot six out of seven days a week um you obviously you have to go with the times there's there's many considerations into place um obviously seasonal artist touring 
production. Um, it, it certainly challenging, but it's doable. Mark Yankar is the general manager of the Coca-Cola Arena, pivoting towards corporate events. Appreciate your time. Thanks for coming Thank down. You. Joining us at Union House this morning, Mark Yankar of Coke Arena. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.